This is Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast about how the world was, is, and will be ordered. This week, we're handing the mic over to Josh Rudolph, the Malign Finance Fellow at GMF's Alliance for Securing Democracy, and the author of a big new report that tracked how foreign covert money is used to influence democracies around the world. Josh is joined by our guest, Luke Harding, the Guardian's Senior International Correspondent, who served as the paper's Moscow Bureau Chief from 2007 to 2011. Luke's also a best-selling author, and the title of his most recent book, Shadow State, Murder, Mayhem, and Russia's Remaking of the West, just about sums up the topic of today's discussion. Josh and Luke discuss how the Kremlin tries to spread its influence around the world. And as you might have guessed, the Facebook trolls are only part of the story. Here's Josh and Luke. I'm Josh Rudolph, the Malign Finance Fellow at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy and your host this week on Out of Order. Our guest is Luke Harding, the award-winning foreign correspondent at The Guardian and author of a new book, Shadow State, Murder, Mayhem, and Russia's Remaking of the West. Welcome, Luke. Great to be with you, Josh. In the couple months since you've published the book, its relevance has just been reinforced by news of continued shadowy Russian mayhem around the world through a handful of different attack vectors, whether it's Russian disinformation with this year's U.S. election once again targeted by a Russian secret agent and the Internet Research Agency. There are Russian cyber attacks by GRU military hackers caught by Microsoft targeting more than 200 organizations affiliated with the U.S. elections. Suspicions by top U.S. officials like Dan Coats that Putin has something on Trump. And beyond the United States, the, the nerve agent attack on Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny and various other channels, weapons, proxies that Russia uses to wage its hidden war against America and the West. And we're going to unpack some of those cases. We'll walk through the toolkit of Russian political warfare. And as part of that, we'll also touch on the vector that I've spent the past year researching, covert foreign money. But before we do that, let's set the stage with some context around how the Russian government runs secret operations around the world. So so tell us, Luke, what is the shadow state? Well, uh, Josh, it's several things. It's a sort of, it's a kind of multi-title, if you like. So on one level, a shadow state is, it's the Russian regime. It's a regime of spies, as as, as you perfectly well know. Putin uh, is KGB. Most of the people around him are sort of men in their mid-60s who who are also from KGB or Russia's security and intelligence services. And the reason that's important is because they share a mentality, a way of thinking, a kind of foundational philosophy, which is absolutely Cold War. It's implacably opposed to America. It sees geopolitics in zero-sum terms. Uh, and also, and this has been a failing of, of, of some American policymakers and also kind of, you know, Brits in my country, um, to understand how these guys think. And they, they believe, they genuinely believe that they're in an in a unofficial semi-war with the West in general and America in particular. It's, it's continuous, it, it's eternal, and they are waging it in, in various different ways that we'll talk about. But the other, the sort of second meaning of shadow state is, is more transportable. It's, it's basically, I think you could describe it as any government where those in charge use the resources, the bureaucracy, the institutions of state for their own quite often dark private purposes, whether it's 
political advantage or making money and getting rich. So so I, I would say that my country under Boris Johnson, the U- United Kingdom, has got shadow statish tendencies. And, and I, I would I would um, respectfully submit that that the US under Donald J. Trump is is also becoming more and more shadow state-like, uh, and that Trump, in this context, is is Putin's sort of willing accomplice. Well, let's let's actually jump to that because that's something that that you um, bring up in in talking about the, the different vectors of, of influence. And, and the fact that, that Donald Trump has denied evidence uh, that Russia's behind these various killings that we'll go on to talk about. And it comes up in your, in your chapters on the Steele dossier and the Helsinki press conference. President Trump asked, who do you believe, President Putin or the U.S. intelligence community? His answer? People came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. Whether it's Russian bounties on, on U.S. soldiers or anything else, Trump, who is usually, you know, can can we say undisciplined about what he says? We saw that with Bob Woodward. And he usually goes to some length to try to appear strong. Uncharacteristically, Trump is unfailingly disciplined about never saying anything at all negative about Vladimir Putin. He is really very much of a leader. I mean, you can say, oh, isn't that a terrible thing? He called him. I mean, the man has very strong control over a country. So tell us from from your, you know, fr- from the perspective of, of an investigative journalist who's been, who's been chasing this, what, what does your nose tell you about the most important U.S. counterintelligence question of the 21st century? What does Putin have on Trump? Well, he has a lot. And, and Josh, I completely agree with your uh, analysis. And before Shadow State, I wrote another book, which was the number one New York Times bestseller, Collusion, where I posed the same question. And, and uh, actually, one of the reasons I wrote Shadow State was it was never emphatically answered. I sort of thought that either either Robert Mueller or perhaps the, the, the Senate um, Intelligence Commission or perhaps via leaks, we, we would, or the tax, or Donald Trump's sort of elusive tax returns, we would get an answer to that question. And and we don't. We're sitting in 2020 and we're going into another absolutely kind of epochal uh, election moment. And we, we, we don't know. But what's clear is that the KGB and its sort of successors have been collecting intelligence on Donald Trump for a long time. Uh, I mean, his first visit to Soviet Moscow was back in 1987, where, where he was talking about building a hotel uh, you know, more than three decades ago. And clearly then his hotel would have been bugged. All of his conversations with Soviet officials would have been recorded and filed away somewhere. And, and then we have other subsequent trips to Russia in the 90s, 2013, and so on. And the dossier of Christopher Steele, which which posits that that he was videoed in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel with two prostitutes. Um, so I think it's both. I mean, it's, it's clearly this classic compromise, compromising material, probably involving women. But, but I also think there are financial flows. Uh, I mean, certainly I've met people, um, Russians, who tell me that they had heard about Donald Trump as early as, as, as 1990, that if you had $4 million you wanted to launder, he was the guy you could buy a condominium from no questions asked, and that his his and I wrote this in collusion. It's not. It's never been. I've had no pushback from the White House. Um, that was his model, uh, essentially. So, it's those two things. And and just just lastly, on a kind of personal note, I mean, I spent four years in Moscow as the Guardian's bureau chief there from 
2007 until I was kicked out in 2011. And we had a series of, of very strange... Uh, a mysterious, discomforting break-ins at our family apartment. And we were advised by the British embassy that this this was the FSB, the, the spy agency that Putin headed, um, successor to the KGB, and that we were bugged. And there was even video in our bedroom. And and I asked Her, Her Majesty's uh, guy if, if, you know, the British government might, might do something to remove this surveillance equipment. And he said, no, there's nothing you can do. So so we, so we my wife and I and our kids, we we had surveillance for three and a half years. So so when you imagine that they would bother to do that with me, a kind of troublesome foreign correspondent, of course, they would video Trump. Of course, they would record all of his movements. And I have to say that the Donald Trump file, if it exists in physical form, is bigger than your wonderful GMF offices. You would need an annex or something to accommodate it. Let's, let's go even to, to more a more nefarious vector. Let's talk about murder. Let's talk about the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, um, which you you wrote, I guess first you, you wrote the definitive book about the killing of Alexander Litvinenko using a, a rare radioactive poison. And the first chapter of your new book is about the GRU poisoning of uh, um, defector Sergei Skripal using a Soviet military-grade a nerve agent called Novichok, which I guess only the Russian government seemingly has access to. And that's kind of the point. It's meant to, to send a message in that case to other would-be defectors. Don't do it, including don't talk to uh, to Bob Mueller. And now, unfortunately, Novichok has been used, used again a few weeks ago uh, against Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Good afternoon, and we begin with breaking news this afternoon. In the past few minutes, the German government has revealed that hospital tests show that the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny was poisoned by a nerve agent from the Novichok group. That's the same group that was used to poison the former Russian spy Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia in Salisbury in 2018. So tell us, Luke, if you were to draft a new chapter or a book about this latest attempted hit, what would it say and what, what's this pattern show more broadly about the Kremlin's usage of assassination? Well, they're still doing it. And, and the fact that there was some international pushback over Skripal a couple of years ago and the US kicked out about 50 Russian diplomats, basically spies, and there was pretty concerted action by the UK and allies over Skripal, that the Putin doesn't really care about this at all. I mean, m- murder was something that was very much in the Soviet toolkit, whether it was Trotsky or Ukrainian nationalists being being assassinated both in country and out of country, or Bulgarian playwrights. Um, I'm thinking of Georgi Markov, who was shot with a ricin pellet fired from an umbrella in London in 1978. Um, and Livinenko, as you say, who was poisoned with radioactive tea. It's become a hallmark of the, of the Putin regime. And... I've got no doubt that, as you suggest, that, that Putin personally authorised this. And we can't know, but it, it, it's deductive insofar as Soviet bureaucratic culture, Russian bureaucratic culture, life and death decisions are taken by the man at the very top. And in in communist times, it was, it was Stalin who would authorise this. And now I think it's very much Putin because clearly taking out Russia's foremost opposition critic... Is, is something that's got kind of huge international consequences. I mean, I think the interesting question is why why the Kremlin has done this now, because Navalny has been irritating them for a very long time. He's he's done videos, for example, about Dmitry Medvedev, the former prime minister, which have been viewed 36 million times. They've got huge traction. He has a massive following. 
And I, I think the answer is that, 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 that the Kremlin is this kind of curious mixture, mixture of sort of super confidence and hyper-aggressive and at the same time rather needy and insecure and, and teenage and inadequate. It's, it's, it's simultaneously too strong but also rather weak. And I think Putin is badly spooked by what's going on in Belarus, which sets a, an example for Russia where there's a genuinely popular mass uprising against a president who's been there way too long. And I think he's also rattled by protests going on in Russia's Far East, where there have been big weekly demonstrations after he dismissed a popular local governor. Um, and and just last year, I would say that Navalny is also all about sending a message to the West and to America. It, it's saying that we don't respect you. We care nothing for your disapproval and your, your words of condemnation. And we will settle with our traitors how we wish, where we wish. And, and by the way, you guys are weak. You guys are weak. Right. And particularly right now we're weak. And in terms of the, the what, why now, you know, Putin may be looking at our own politics and the possibility of change and the opportunity to do that now and maybe have less pushback than he would next year. And there were also constitutional changes in Russia earlier this year. And so if, if they're kind of going down a little bit closer of a, a Xi Jinping model of just dispensing with, with you know, democracy, I mean, sorry, even the semblance of uh, authoritarian democracy, if Putin could just stay in power, you know, essentially for life, then then why need any more an opposition figure like Navalny? It seems like it's just taken a dark turn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, he does it because he can. Uh, and in a way, it's all about showing who's boss. There's a wonderful word in Russian, Khazayan. You know, it's it's kind of the sort of landlord almost. He he's boss, uh, and he can do what he wants. But I do think I think you make a good point. Um, I mean, my, uh, what I'm told from my sources is the Russians are very confident that Donald Trump will win. By the way, but they also haven't entirely ruled out the possibility of a Joe Biden victory, and and they understand, of course, that that if Biden does become president, that the the Russian foreign policy will change. It will be less accommodating. It'll be more uncomfortable. It'll be more aggressive. There'll be further pushback, probably more sanctions, uh, and so on. And so there's a sort of window. Uh, there's a window. There's a perfect window for misadventure, which is now. And and the, the sort of calculation may change a little bit come next January if we have President Biden. And and and, and clearly, the, the the Kremlin is active again in the the U.S. election. So let's actually talk about about that and you know the the two proven vectors uh, that the Russian government used in 2016 were hacking and disinformation. And you write about how you know, Russia spent the past couple of years testing out new tradecraft, whether it's. Evgeny Prigozhin's range of hybrid warfare activities in Africa, or GRU hacking around the world, Brazil, Canada, Malaysia, Netherlands, Switzerland. And now, uh, with in the United States, the, the, the Russians are back across all of these attack vectors. The intelligence community says that they're using a range of measures to denigrate Biden and to help Trump, including a Ukrainian lawmaker that the U.S. Treasury recently sanctioned, labeling him an active Russian agent cultivating you know, false and unsubstantiated narratives in cooperation with, this is not the U.S. government's term, it's my own, but useful idiots on the U.S. side. There's the Internet Research Agency creating online news websites and social media presence taken down by Facebook and Twitter after a, a tip from the FBI. And cyber attacks, too. The same GRU hackers who broke into the DNC four years ago are added again, targeting more than 200 organizations surrounding the U.S. election. 
Are these mounting notifications enough at this point that we can say that Russia is interfering at least as aggressively as they were in in 2016 using updated versions of the same tools, cyber and disinfo? Yeah, I mean, Josh, it's it's a great question, and I, I haven't. I, I'm, I'm thinking about this very actively at the moment. I, I haven't got a sort of definitive view, but my provisional view is actually no. I, I think yes, they are doing this stuff. All of these things you lay out, but I think the situation differs from 2016 in sort of two major ways. What one is we all now know about Russian meddling. I mean, if you if you cast your mind back to summer 2016, it was kind of contested. The FBI was slow off the mark. Uh, Trump denied it. You know, said it was some fat guy on a bed, etc. Um, and now we're much older and kind of much wearier. And I think some of this is what you might call great power projectionism. It's basically saying, look at us, look at us. You know, we're a major player. And it's for for. For, for the domestic audience. I mean, it's formally denied all this stuff, but of course it's, it's, it's for Russians to say, look, once again, we're determining the outcome of the American election. And, and also it's, it's, it's directed uh, at America as well to say, look, you may think we've gone away uh, and that we're chastened, but we haven't gone away. We're going we're gonna to try and do it again. I mean, the, the strategic goal is still there. They want Donald Trump to win. They think he will win. They'll try and help him win if they can. And there may be further document dumps from Ukraine about Joe Biden or his son or Burisma, which we will get like a sort of firework. That may be coming. That's that's quite possible. But I also think my sort of second point is that I think Putin has, to some large degree, he's already succeeded. I mean, from his point of view, America is the weakest it's been um, in, in the whole Cold War and post-Cold War period. I mean, it, it's in retreat. Um, it is in a state of, well, it looks from the outside, like like almost a sort of cold civil war or nascent civil war or there's just so much sort of strife whether it's um you know black lives matter or or, or police or or ideology um uh or, or so on that, that if if in 2016 you know that the, there was a fire burning what putin and his his spies did very very successfully was to kind of chuck paraffin on the fire now to a large degree he can just sit and watch the show i mean he can throw on a bit of paraffin here and there but but you know the 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 country is um in conflict with itself and therefore i'm not sure that they need to kind of intervene on the same scale that they did last time but that's you know that that is the 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 assessment of the intelligence community that they are using a range of measures but yeah it's a question of uh of, of yeah, the yeah scale. i'm not denying that yeah. i mean yeah yeah they're doing it of course but i'm just think that their their goals this time may be subtly sort of slightly different from 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 last time although the, the the end point is that trump stays right strategically they have more to work with on the u.s side so it might take a little bit less of a proactive push precisely precisely they don't need to they don't need to push quite so hard this time and to the extent that they that they want to or want to find spots to push i'd like to to round out the discussion of the the toolkit and um, describe and get your reaction to what i think is the most underappreciated external threat to democracy covert foreign money at the Alliance for Securing Democracy, we recently published a major report, which we'll link to in the in the show notes, finding that Russia and China and other authoritarian regimes have collectively funneled more than $300 million into 33 countries to interfere in democratic processes more than 100 times. And it is getting worse. It used to be just two to three new cases a year, but with sweeping campaigns launched in the middle of the last decade, it's now 15 to 30 new cases in each of the last five years of expat donors in Britain, party loans in France, oil profits in Italy, lawmaker support in Germany, far-right news websites in Sweden. 
The Chinese government does this too, by the way, sending you know, straw donors on secret missions to interfere in democracies in the Asia-Pacific and elsewhere. And the country that gets hit the most, the United States, on both sides. Emirati secret agents trying to buy influence with Hillary Clinton in 2016. And sometimes, you know, as you're pointing out, sometimes it comes from within the country. Donald Trump asking foreign governments for help five times across these two elections. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. He says to Rob, who is setting up this meeting, if it's what you say, I love it, especially later in the summer. Well, the implication, I think, would be that they tried to cheat, right? They felt like they could rely on Stone as that access point. Breaking news overnight, President Trump personally ordered the suspension of hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid to Ukraine just days before he encouraged their president to investigate his political rival, Joe Biden. Bolton claims President Trump asked the Chinese president to help him win re-election. Strikingly, 83% of the time, this is actually legal, enabled by a loophole in US campaign finance law about intangible things of value. So the real novel contribution, I hope, of, of our research has been to bucket all of these cases into the top seven legal loopholes, and then work with almost 100 leading experts to craft targeted policy solutions that would close the door to covert foreign money. So, Luke, you have a chapter on this called Moscow Gold, which I learned was the Soviet shorthand for bankrolling communist parties in Italy, France, America, India. Uh, But you mean it a little bit more literally with the the gold and then diamond deals offered to uh, Aaron Banks. So how do you see money fitting into the Kremlin's toolkit of political warfare? Well, it, it's crucial. It's it's their biggest weapon. I mean, money and disinformation. And it flows from Vladimir Putin's solemn conviction that anybody, you, me, Josh, the whole GMF, we could all be bought if the price is right. Uh, it's a kind of cynical... It's a cynical approach, uh, and and the problem if you're if you're a kind of Democrat or a Western policymaker is it's actually been very effective, and and he's got a lot of ingress, um, and um, certainly I mean, Moscow Gold was was a kind of non-fiction retelling of what happened in 2016 because. Uh, in, in the US, at least, for all of its many flaws, and, and it's, a, it's a subject for another time, Robert Mueller did spend almost two years trying to delve into to Trump Russia and, and the Senate too, more recently. Uh, but we've had no similar reckoning in the UK. And what we do know is that the sort of Trump, the pro-Trump and the pro-Brexit operation was concurrent in 2016, often featured the same actors, the same spies, the same trolls, uh, Addison Petersburg, who were uh, boosting Brexit and boost, boosting, boosting Trump. And also a kind of financial component. So, so in Trump's case, it was this eternal hotel ding, deal being kind of dropped in front of his, or waved in front of his nose, uh, which which he lied about in 2016. And in the UK, it was a series of gold, diamond, and then again gold deals being offered by none less a person than the Russian ambassador um, in London, someone called Alexander Yakovenko, to Aaron Banks, who who gave about $12 million to Brexit. It's the biggest donation in British political history, uh, and it proved to be highly effective. So the other, the other, just the other thing to say is that, as you pointed out, in Soviet times, the, the vector was, was, was communist parties. I mean, the, the KGB gave quite a lot of money to, to the American Communist Party, not, not that it did much good, but, but certainly in places like France and Italy, actually it helped build a kind of mass left-wing movement. Whereas now, 
what Putin's preferred partner is is the the, the populist radical far right. And of course, there's some overlap with Trump in that, but also in Europe, in my neighbourhood, we we see the support for the far right in Austria, in the Balkans, in Germany, um, in Italy, and, and so on. But also some some kind of some support for the far left as well. And the strategy is is clear: it is to squash the moderate centre centrism and, and to promote the two extremes and then to watch them kind of fight each other that that's the scenario that that Putin wants because then Russia can do its sovereign thing kind of round the back um so it's quite effective and where as you say where Russia goes today China will go emiratis will go other bad actors will go to the point where if we don't do something about it it's actually going to be quite hard to have a free and fair democratic election anywhere going forward. Right. And I mean, you, in terms of what to do about it and where to look and how and who, I appreciate that you, that you mentioned that, that we had uh, the Mueller investigation here and, you know, something like that would be useful on your side of the pond. Although even Mueller, you know, did, did not really, you know, follow, follow the money looking, you know, through... Not at all. So laundering through real estate or the decades-long ties to Moscow we talked about, or the billionaire Russian expat donors funding through Deutsche Bank and the NRA. So there's plenty of, of, of work and counterintel investigations still needing to be done here. And actually, uh, you know, in, in Britain, at least you did, you did have the, the, um, the, the parliamentary report recently, which, which did kind of go, go further in exploring that financial component than I think we have on the U.S., Side. I mean, it's no, it's it's not, it's it's bigger in London than in everywhere. But uh, so 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 there's there's plenty to look at. But there was a whole section there on elite Russian expat donors, and I guess the names were were hidden in the annex. But but at least at, at least um, the parliament is is looking at it closely. Well, 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 yes, but Josh, it's it's enormously frustrating, and I've I've devoted a lot of my uh, investigative attention to to looking at looking at this this question. Basically, this is Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee, who said, who told us that actually the British government didn't want to inquire too deeply about Russian interference because because Boris Johnson, Theresa May believes in Brexit. It's their pet project, which Russia supported for its own reasons because it hates the European Union uh, and hates multilateralism. So we've had no inquiry. But what it was good at, as you say, is that it was good at calling out one of the major problems, which is of um, Western British American enablers. I mean, one thing we know from the whole Paul Manafort story is is how easy it is to kind of buy people in New York or, or DC or London who will advance your interests, which may be private interests, okay, fair enough, but they also may be connected to the state. There may be kind of Kremlin interests. And we, we've seen a lot of, uh, certainly in my town in London, we, we've seen real estate guys, we, we've seen former intelligence officers, we've seen PR people, we've even seen members of the House of Lords effectively get on the Russian payroll to the point where, where this Russia report talks not of London, but of Londongrad and says the problem is so bad that we're never going to be able to kind of get rid of all this Russian cash. So I just say when you're sort of thinking about this conceptually, it's not about bad people stealing money far away about whom we know nothing. Ultimately, this is a story of our own corruption 
and the subversion of our, our own societies by people within them. And in a way, that's why it's so scary. That's why it's so scary is, is that, I mean, certainly the British Conservative Party, I would say, has been semi-captured by Russian interests. Right. And uh, you know, every, everything you're saying, obviously, are important lessons that, that we need to learn on the U.S. side. And all of these things apply just as much here on both sides of the Atlantic. So I appreciate that, you know, because Americans, we tend to to see Russian interference through the lens of either first the Cold War or then our own unfortunately politicized experience of the 2016 election and and now seeing the Russians coming back again. But there's a lot that we can learn from what Russia has done around the world, how other democracies have have responded, some better than than others how target countries can risk becoming more like Russia and really understand it as a, as a global phenomenon. So last question, just tell us what can Americans learn from the, the international experience of Russian secret operations? Well, well, I, I mean, at the risk of sounding a bit a bit flippant, that 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 they're not alone. <laughs> I mean, America has been been at the front end of all this. I mean, I I grant you that, and and it, it certainly viewed from Moscow, what happened in twenty sixteen is 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 seen as the greatest Russian or Soviet espionage operation ever. I mean, I mean, wh- whether you accept the collusion thesis or the Russian interference thesis or not, certainly the Kremlin thinks it it got Donald Trump elected. They, they genuinely believe that. And a lot of people made career, got promoted, won medals off the back of that. But the, the, what needs to be understood is that, that Vladimir Putin sees himself on a great redemptive historical mission. And, and his, his mission is to, to make Russia great again. But by that... I mean, to, to be a sort of superpower on a par with America as in the Cold War. Now, looked at dispassionately, that's a crazy idea. I mean, Russia's GDP is so much smaller. No one buys anything made in Russia. Um, it, it, its influence on the world stage is all about, um, it's transgressive. It's all about murdering people and spreading propaganda and subverting elections. But but nonetheless, Putin, Putin sort of sees the world in, in 19th century terms and so he's on a kind of it, for him it's a sort of neo imperial road that he's he's on and we've seen wars in ukraine um and in georgia we've seen the annexation of crimea we we've seen russia deploying outside its borders for the first first time since the end of the cold war in syria and we don't know what the next box set may be especially if trump is re-elected. Uh, I I worry about the 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 Balkans. I think what we're going to see over the next few months is the soft annexation of Belarus, not with tanks, but through buying up strategic industries and and introducing the ruble. And all of this is 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 going on at a time where America is is self preoccupied to say the least. So, I think what what your listeners need to understand is that that. That Putin's ambitions are, uh, are global. I mean, some of the stuff I write about in my book, Shadow State, about Yevgeny Prigozhin, the, the, the oligarch behind the troll factory and behind Wagner, the mercenary outfit, um, they've made huge in- inroads almost unnoticed into Central Africa uh, uh, and North Africa. They were sending election monitors, in inverted commas, to Madagascar. I mean, th- these are countries that don't figure in our conversations. And yet, actually, Russia is doing its opportunistic thing uh, and trying to kind of play a role there. So America is not alone. That's the good news. Good news. But the bad news is the problem is global. And, and to solve it, you, you, you need to talk and engage with friends and allies. And you also need to kind of recognise and articulate 
what's really going on. And what's really going on is that the Russia of Vladimir Putin in the 21st century has become a rogue state, a shadow state, rogue state, a, a revisionist state that, that wishes America ill uh, and wants to, wants to upend the world order. So, I mean, that, that's, that's good for you and I, Josh. We're going to be talking about this forever. But it's, it's bad for democracy as our century rolls forward. Thank you, Luke. Again, the, the, the book is, is Shadow State and in my recent report, Covert Foreign Money. You should read them read them both and we will, we will include links in the show notes. Uh, but um, this is a, a, a rich conversation that I learned a lot from. I appreciate it, Luke. Josh, Josh thank you. Really great, great, great pleasure to, to, to be with you, albeit rather remotely. Thank you. And we'll, we'll see you all next time on Out of Order. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. The show is produced by Zachary Tarrant, Rachel Tausenfreund, and me, Sydney Simon. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.